recording. We are recording now. Uh, this is Peter Williamson, the final episode of our collective giving season of Open Door Philanthropy. Um, let me do a tongue twister or two. Uh, unique New York, you need New York, you know you need unique New York. All right, that sounds pretty good. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. I could take me half a day. Toy boat, toy boat. Oh, I, I practiced these for like... Toy boat. Toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. <laughs> My drama teacher in college used to do toy boat like before every class. Yeah. He would just come out and just walk around doing toy boat, toy boat, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> it, it is helpful. It gets you like warmed up. Uh, hello, everybody. I am here with Peter Williamson. We are wrapping up the collective giving season at Open Door Philanthropy with a familiar face. Peter and I have uh, played golf together, and he's on the board of the unfunded list. Uh, and he has a variety of other things as well. We're going to talk about a lot of that today. How are you doing, Peter? Good, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for doing this. And it is a Sunday morning, so thank you for doing that. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's final day of golf tournament, so. Yep. <laughs> final episode, final day, it's good. Yep. So do you remember the first time that you made a gift or did something that was intentional and generous? Do we count uh, holiday gifts? Yes, that um, honestly, like 80% of the time that the person's, yeah. the person's answer is holiday or birthday related. Yeah, I would think, I would think that I... I've always been somewhat uncomfortable with gift giving. Uh, I couldn't really identify why. Um, I always felt like being around people and the experience of just, you know, socializing was, was good enough. But I think as a young kid, you always want to impress your parents. So you think of, I think back to like, you know, preschool, elementary school, when either one parent is saying like, oh, we're going to make this photo for mom, or we're going to make this something for dad, or we're going to get something, we're going to go to the store and uh, you know, pick something out. That's probably the first memory I have. Um, mm -hmm. you, is there anything uh, specific? Like the very first one? Yeah. I, I would say specifically, uh, it's going and getting something. You know, my dad was, my dad played golf. Uh, he's really into it. Um, and it's, you know, and it's an experience or it's a, you know, a sleeve of golf balls. It's something that you could maybe take out of your allowance and, and give to a parent. Mm. I, I, there are a number of art projects in schools that I remember giving. And I went home recently. It's obviously been a couple of years in the pandemic. Haven't been, haven't been back home. Um, and my, my mom has a sort of a corkboard wall on her, uh, in her work setup. And on that corkboard wall, it, it's, ordained with many of our childhood treasures. Uh, huh. I think that's what she calls them. Uh, yeah. I think that's why you hang them. Uh, I, uh, I'm pretty sure I also got my dad a sleeve of golf balls some, yeah. <laughs> sometime, sometime early on. Generally, always, always appreciated. I like to play with a new ball every time. Yeah. You never know. It, it might be the round of your life, so you should use a new yeah, ball. That's exactly right. You, you never know which ball you're going to do it with either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So. I tend to ding mine up pretty good. <laughs> cart, the cart path and the road. <laughs> yeah, right. You hit as many trees right. as I do, that'll happen. Uh -huh. um, so uh, one of the reasons I like that question is that the answer like almost always has a lot of connection to like what that person's doing as an adult, right? And your, uh, the, the giving part of your answer was family oriented and you're, you've got a family foundation and are involved in, in that universe, right? You also mentioned golf. You're a professional golfer, right? Yeah. Rarely is this your first. I find it just very, very interesting how like direct the connection is. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And you also mentioned that you went to Dartmouth. I've never heard of that institution. Is that a good? <laughs> is that a good school? It's okay. Uh, it was. <laughs> it was nice that it was in my backyard, so I knew a little bit more than the average individual about it. So, like you, I grew up in New England, and I had we had a school in our backyard, Colby College. Mm -hmm. uh, similar to Dartmouth. Yeah. Uh, at same number of syllables. <laughs> it's important. The two syllables. <laughs> um, the uh, I went to Dickinson, which has that one more syllable. So if you're if that's how you judge your institutions, then 
Uh, but uh, I, I was at going to Colby with my parents for professor. To go, it was certainly an option for me. My cousin did go there. Lots of other my family members went. Um, but I wanted to go somewhere else, uh, and I, which is somewhat relevant because I've recently returned to my home, right? But uh, back in the day, I had a very strong desire to leave, right, rural Maine uh, for, right, uh, what was eventually Washington, D.C. Uh, and you did, you also ended up in D.C. eventually, but unlike me, chose to stay in your backyard for school. What was that, like, what was the, you must have, did you consider, also consider leaving, or was it always just Dartmouth? Yeah, considered leaving. I'd say uh, a lot of the decision was 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 kind of held up in whatever happened with golf. I, around middle school, dropped a lot of the other sports that I played mm-hmm. to continue on with golf uh, and played in high school and then wanted to play in college and was trying to grapple with the question of, do I want to be the sort of big fish in a small pond? Uh, be you know one of the best players on the team and always be playing, um, and and try to kind of take a leadership role early on and have a four year career, or did I want to go to a big school and potentially be a very small fish just because they're going to look at a kid from New Hampshire and not really think much of him probably for a year or two, um, and I was kind of bouncing around and looking at institutions that were were good academically but also had a golf team that I could play on, and and Dartmouth just ended up. Um, you know, I don't want to say it just fell on my lap because it's a hard institution to get into, but um, it, it, it just worked out really well. The golf coach had played professionally, um, had a lot of insight to share, had a lot nice. of connections, um, which uh, really helped me after I graduated. I've never had a coach that I couldn't like beat the pants off of. They're basically yeah. just van drivers. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, thanks, I Coach, golfers, like, if, you're, if they listen to the podcast. On, on, in the audience, but uh, <laughs> I, I very distinctly remember a qualifying round where we had kind of early on in my career. My coach was on 14th tee, and he was 11 under. Were there any, like, community institutions or anything other than the, like, golf course and school you were a part of, clubs of the things? Um, no, I mean, when I say golf was it, golf yeah. was pretty much it. I was a pretty shy kid. And, um, you know, golf was my, my area of respite. Um, and mm-hmm. I would say it was probably watching what my parents did. Uh, that was more influential. So my dad was a pediatrician. My mom was, was in education. Um, and both of those professions, you know, as you know, it leads to kind of watching people helping others a lot, mm-hmm. right? One on the health side, one on learning and, um, you know, I think that was really influential on, on just seeing how you can take what you learn from the people around you and, and try to embed it in your career somehow. Mm-hmm. What did you, when you were in school, what did you enjoy studying? Yeah, so I'm really, really fascinated in people and spaces. So I studied geography and architecture because uh, it is kind of that intersection of how people interact with space. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, the geography is a, is a big, there are actually not a lot of institutions that cover geography as, as, a, as a major. Uh, they might have courses that we would consider to be geography. You know, you got physical geography, nature geography, and think about GIS, the stuff that's in your phone and uh, mapping, and you could think of, you know, environmental science. Like, they all kind of fit inside this big category box. And so I was really into, into mm, the sociology and mapping data part of geography, um, oh. and then kind of compiling that with architecture and designing systems uh, and thinking about how um, you can challenge the norm uh, to make people feel certain things. So, and yep. as a as a theater man, that all yeah. you sounded to me like it almost sounded to me like you were talking about theater. Like we, yeah. one of my favorite books about theater is called The Empty Space, because that's like basically just this. Every stage is an empty space, and you get to right challenge the norms of how someone uses mm-hmm. space. Um, you chose, right, and there's lots of different ways to think about that. Um, theater's comparable to almost all things, which is one of the reasons I like it. Did you ever do any plays or theater or anything like that? 
really young yeah. and they were not good. Not good. I was. <laughs> I I had some starring roles in some plays and my yeah. family still makes fun of me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I won't. I could ask follow-up questions, but we I will. think I think I I, well, <laughs> I will I will follow up answer without a follow-up question. I had um, there was one play when I was young when it was like the I can't remember what the title was Festival of the Animals or something. I you know, elementary school teacher sounds great. He doesn't remember what it was called. It's basically all about everyone had an animal, and I was the turtle. I feel like uh -huh. it was it was. It was it made sense, right? It tracked with kind of how I was at that point. I was I was pretty slow moving, yeah. And um, it was just one of those moments in the plays where you could tell that the teacher was sitting there and being like, "What can Peter do? He doesn't want to really be a part of this." Uh, we're gonna give him the slowest moving, just often, slow. Moving often we make that it, kid the tree. It, well, yeah, right. But you know, you had to be an animal, so you pick you know sloth or turtle or something and just have them mosey around the stage but did you have a shell to the point where this was the crescendo of of the of the thing so it, it was like i'm wandering across the stage but like all the eyes are on me wasn't sure what to think about that but i nailed my part because all yeah. i had to do was walk i'm sure you did you're a champion after all <laughs> did you have a shell like that you wore? oh yeah no it was full it was a full costume did you do like any neck work Still network. I mean, long neck. So yeah, really, I feel like you really could pull the. I, I was, would yeah. if I were directing you. I, I would be. It was a good. That would be a fun challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I would. Have, I'm sorry. I did not. I was not around to see that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, when you were at Dartmouth, which is a like very well funded institution with a large endowment. Um, as a student, how much of that? I imagine, right? You're you're involved in philanthropy now. You probably are aware of Dartmouth's endowment, and uh, I'm sure you've been fundraised. I'm sure they've asked you, you know, <laughs> asked you for money by now. Just, right? yeah, just a few times. When you were attending, when you were like an 18 year old student there, focused on golf, how much of that did you understand? I think of institutional fundraising uh, less, but I will say, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, I part of a sixth generation family foundation and I got involved, you know, around 12 or 13. So I had been kind of in and around family meetings for what, five, six years before college started. So I was mm -hmm. starting to get into the hang of, of what, you know, giving as an institution meant. Um, and you know, you get into any, any career path in, in, in college, uh, and you probably see some form of, you know, money exchanging hands. Right. Um, no, not to dig on my wife's major, but Russian lit. I don't know if there's money exchanging hands. Uh, Cryptocurrency. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but no, you, there's there's some form, you know, for architecture, it was always, how are you going to fundraise to build the next building? And we had a bunch of construction projects around the campus. And so I would hear, you know, conversations around it, but I, I didn't dig too much into the Dartmouth, Dartmouth ways. It was more, how can I learn personally at the family level um, and just absorb as much as I could. So I've never been on the campus, but I can assume that like the buildings, so the buildings are all named after people who donated money at some point. One of the things I've noticed yeah. is like most, I don't know, like I, when I, even when I went to, when I was growing up on Colby's campus and even when I went to Dickinson for like a while, I would like, I don't know, just sort of assume that those, that the buildings were named after people who had like done things, mm -hmm. right? And like they had done things. That's not the reason why the buildings were named after them. Like they were, it was a very specific, I will give you this check and yeah. you will name this building after me. Like yeah. transactional situation, yeah. right? It's not as much of a meritocracy as it seems. No, that, that definitely came out, I would say, later on. You know, Dartmouth actually is a very interesting, it's not, it's not crazy rich, but it, it it's a it's a really cool history of of architecture and how the campus developed over mm. time <clears throat> and the kind of styles of buildings are represented around the campus as very much time period pieces and they just did a huge mm. renovation of one of the you know a very well-known museum the hood um and uh it it feels like they've kind of brought it up to modern times and so you know mm. as the architecture changed throughout the campus 
you could see that there were different names on different buildings. And I would say that was the thing that I recognized the most was, you know, the, the kind of science, math, economics, they all had very particular names that were of people that donated to the school. Uh, and the ones that were older felt a little bit more of that I don't know. They had more of a kind of like political stature, mm -hmm. right? Or mm, um, sure. they were known in the community. When was Dartmouth founded? Oh, it's on the it's on the bell tower. I should probably know that. Should <laughs> I? Sixteen ninety five? I don't know. Sixteen ninety five? You can you can look it up. I think it's a ninety five. It's on Baker Tower. Uh, I'm trying to think. So, uh, Dickinson was seventeen seventy six, which is very easy to remember. Yeah. Uh, but very old, right? And I think the same thing I would think. So like, I, and this might even be true. Like some of the original buildings, like those might be, like those people probably gave some money, but like it may have been, like they were, they also had instrumental roles in building the institution. And part of that instrumental role was like, here's some money. But they, they like also, you know, did things there. Uh, like John Dickinson, for instance, was involved. I believe he did purchase the land, but he like... <laughs> I kind of hope so. Was, do, was doing things. Um, yeah. the, uh, uh, I do remember, uh, you know, very early on while I was there, though, they were like, they talked to us about the gap between, like, what our tuition was and what it actually cost to educate us, right? The, um, uh, so uh, a question I usually ask is, like, outside of school, you know, where did you learn the most? I assume for you that is the golf course. Yeah. What's a, like, I'm sure you can... We could talk for a very long time. What's like a generally key lesson you've learned, like from playing golf? You probably would, that you perhaps one you would have not learned anywhere else. Humility. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. As a fellow golfer, it's a humiliating sport. Like I, <laughs> I, 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 like I, I played pretty well yesterday. But I topped a drive on one of the holes. Like a lot of people saw it. <laughs> humiliating yeah. my face turned know, red I, I, beat red it, it, i mean it's <laughs> it's constantly humiliating you um the I, I i actually think that for me uh and and thinking about my career now I, dealing with failure is something that a lot of people are not good with yeah um and you know it has its resonance in the giving community right if you're a, a recipient of a grant or not a recipient of a grant yeah. uh you know there's rejection there and yeah. and you could see that as a failure you could see that as a learning experience but so, so i think you know being able to frame golf in a way that it is a game of errors and so you're trying to be this kind of perfection there's, there's a perfectionist mentality to golf right you mess up one shot you've kind of messed up your perfect game right um but you're bound to do it a bunch of times. And so you get very much into a process over results kind of mentality. Because if you start thinking about results, you just mm -hmm. you spiral down into a pretty oh, yeah. quick depressed state. So um, I, uh, I have uh, worked with a lot of first-time golfers. I was, a, I was a teacher at New England Golf Academy for a while. And like just in general, I've been, I like inviting my friends out. Right? I like teaching, showing people golf for the first time. When we do Unfunded in the Pines, like we bring people to the Maniac Hill sometimes to swing their first club. Uh, we had um, Joseph Paul from the he's, um, from the Women's Goat Project came this time, and uh, I I had him like swinging the like had him make contact for the first time. Like it's pretty exciting. The and I've also because of Unfunded List talked to people with their, about their first grant proposals, trying to get their first grants, right? And when I think about and it's now been probably hundreds of folks in both categories. And there's just lots of, when you, like in terms of who's going to succeed, right? The ones who understand that they're going to fail repeatedly are the ones that are going to succeed. The ones who are like, I, I, I'm gonna get this, like, they're like, rejection is unacceptable, like I'm gonna, right? Like I know some, some golfers who should be like trying to break 90 and they're trying to break 70. Yeah. And of course they're upset. They can't, yeah. they're not that good. Right. <laughs> There's like, and it seems possible, right? Like if I could only do it perfectly, right? Right. But like stop with your magical thinking. 
I, you know, I'm, I'm the, <laughs> the golf the will remind you right? that it doesn't that it doesn't work that way every time you go out there, and and it, it, the such the the grant cycles will will remind you of that too. If right. you're like if you're not a fit for that program and you apply anyway, like guess what? Like you don't you're gonna get rich. <laughs> you're gonna have well, a bad cool. time. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> I feel like if you're you know your nonprofit started six months ago and you're like right, you know what I'm gonna go after you know big government funding that you know doesn't know me at all. Yep. Right? Trying to shoot seventy, I'm gonna shoot hundred and five. It's a it it's a it's a it's a long slog, right? Yeah. And if you just sort of, if you accept the long slog, right, you'll slowly and incrementally improve, right? And then you'll break ninety, and then you'll break eighty, and then maybe eventually yeah. you will break seventy. Yeah. Right. And so I think you know, long long answer to a relatively quick question. I um I feel like that humility kind of gets you into a mindset of you're willing to bet the long term over the short term, right? Um, and so I feel like we're in such a culture right now that's, I need things now and quickly. Uh, and I, I feel very out of place having come back away from my golf career. Um, you know, for those, I played professional golf for about five years after college and, um, you know, took a step away about five years ago. Uh, and coming back into the world, it's just, there's so much now needs to happen, you know, and it's just so opposite to what my mind is built around. So when you hit a bad shot, which happens for you far less frequently than for me, but it happens often now. Right, I'm sure it happens. Like you know, it goes in the woods or the water or something. Right. Uh, in general, how do you react? I think it depends on the moment. Uh, typically, I'm I'm fairly even keel when I'm out playing golf. I like trying new things. I think mm -hmm. that's the artist in me. Um, you know, for those of you who are golfers, Bubba Watson is someone who's on tour who likes to do things a little differently, likes to curve the golf ball a lot. Yeah. Um, I always saw golf in shapes. I'd see a shape of a shot and I try to mimic that in my mind. So it's a lot of visualization. And if that visualization doesn't happen, you know, I think the maturity of my, of my career has gone from disappointment and sort of frustrated that I can't execute it to all right, how can I learn from that? Or what can I do better? Or what can I put away in my brain to go work on after the round? And I think just thinking about, you know, I was self-taught growing up, never had a, a swing coach. And just having that in the back of my mind is, all right, I've got something that I can go work on. Someone who likes to constantly improve, it's an opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. so if I hit it in the woods, I know at least I can hit it again. Mm -hmm. If I hit it in the water, you know, I'm taking a penalty shot whether I like it or not. And if you're in a tournament, you know, that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, in general now, my terrible shots, I just laugh. Mm. Right? Like, I do want to play well and everything. But, like, unlike when I was younger and when I was a kid, like, I have other, like, I run a nonprofit. So if my round goes awry, it's, like, not, it's really not <laughs> the end of the world, right? <laughs> Oh, you gotta be playing, uh, I've got a whole lot of other things going on in my life, right? <laughs> but there were, I mean, when I was on the, when I was playing, like particularly like junior and senior year of high school, when I was it, during the golf season, like I didn't really care about that much else other than my next match, because I didn't, I didn't really have. I mean, I had high school, which was not particularly difficult, and uh, right, nothing that all, all that all that challenging except my next match, right? right? And if I were to lose any of them, which I did not. Uh, I was a very good match player, match play player. Yeah. Metal play, not so much. The, uh, all right. Um, very interesting. So uh, golf and philanthropy do often intersect. Even for people who don't uh, play golf, they're aware of charity golf fundraisers or right, uh, probably just in general understanding of the connections there. Uh, you, uh, as I'm aware, you uh, have helped out with some charity golf tournaments, including one that our All Star Managing Director Margaret Chapman put on. That's right. And if you're out there hoping to put on a charity golf tournament, Margaret Chapman is the best in the business. <laughs> Why is it that you think golf pairs so well with philanthropy and raising money? That's uh, a multi multi layered question. Yeah, my dad wrote like a whole book about this. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I don't expect you to like, you know, yeah, cover any, right cover now. the whole thing, right? But yeah, like, right. I think there is, um, 
there's something about golf. I mean, obviously it's a, it, it started and it has kind of become a, a, a wealthy person's game, right? And over the over the years, they've tried to bring more people into the sport, but it is an expensive sport to play, right? Um, so you know that if you're bringing people in that are playing golf, they most likely have a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. Whether they can give it to you, who knows? But uh, it, it is a format. Your charity golf tournaments are a format that just churn out people who want to play and have fun and socialize, it it just checks so many boxes about Mm -hmm. what people are looking for, right? Mm -hmm. They can be outside, they can be with friends or colleagues or whoever they are in their group. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and they generally, the the tab is paid for by a company. So that helps too. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's a way to, um, compete. There's a way to collaborate. Uh, you can buy cheating too, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, Pay for and stuff. To, to, to cut your score somehow or you know, take a ball. <laughs> the string, the, the string. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of, a lot of tricks <laughs> that you got. Some things that, you know, you think about gamification and you know, we might get into this. I'm a game designer now. Um, there's a lot of you know, just ways that you can kind of trick people or influence people to do certain things. So right? we have, what was uh, the, there, what was the gimmick? with the one tournament you did with Margaret? I mean, you were out on the course. Could they like rent you for one shot or something? Yeah, so a lot of times I've done a number of charity fundraisers, either as a pro in what is known as a pro-am. Right, so yeah. Typically there's a tournament that runs Thursday to Friday, or Thursday to Sunday on, on the big tour, and the Monday to Wednesday is packed with, you know, your ability right. to practice, but they also have a big charity fundraiser. And people will play, they pay extra. They get to play with a pro on the, yep. on the course and tournament conditions, right? Yep. And they feel good yep. about it because it's also, they get to enjoy it around a golf, right? Especially, yep. I believe the Pebble Beach one raises extreme amount, extremes amount of money because yeah. it's celebrities I mean, and pros. Yeah. Right? The history people are willing to drop lots of money for that. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, uh, I, if my dad were here, he could tell you the numbers, but it's raised more money yeah. than like, I think the only other sport that's raised more money is softball because there's just so many local softball leagues and then almost all it's of them are like, that's great. Yeah. yeah. He I did a bunch of research trying it. to find the, like, what's the game that gets played most often in the U S yeah. uh, and it's all, it's probably softball that it changes often, mm-hmm. right? Cause trends change, but there's an enormous number of, of adult softball leagues. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like pretty much every community's got some softball going. Uh, that may have changed now. So- soccer, I know soccer has become extremely popular in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and in yeah. fact, gol- uh, yeah, golf is fastest growing in other parts of the world. Uh, my dad's yeah. podcast is very popular in India, India and Bangladesh because they love golf and they don't want to listen to like an Indian golf podcast. They want to listen to American golf podcast. So it's so it's really funny. My dad's is like not tailored to an Indian audience at all. <laughs> but that, that's who listens because uh, he's, he's you know, a golf if you're, if you're out there right? he's a golf historian Richard J. Moss if you're interested in golf history he's the world's expert and a bunch of books you can read uh, including one about Piners where you won North and South Open congratulations again thank you got to take advantage of that more now <laughs> so uh, w- moving on to philanthropy uh, which is what, like the meat on the bone of the interview I like to reward folks who listen past the first half, right? This is the, this is the good stuff. So you are on the board of your family foundation? Are you a member of it? I'm not sure, exactly uh, found, sure. I'm a trustee now. A trustee. Uh, newer role, but yes. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll get into some details with that in a minute. But you, you're also a founder, I think, of Next Gen Giving Circle. Yep. DC. Uh, started a giving circle in the DC area with with another colleague uh, that I met when I moved here roughly five years ago, um, mm-hmm. and it's been a very rewarding experience. Um, what is a uh, what is the next gen giving circle? Sure. Yeah. So, kind of a a back step. I, there are a bunch of different reasons why someone might create a giving circle. I'm sure, people on podcasts may be a part of it. Uh, part of one in their, in their area, but it is very much a way to quote unquote democratize philanthropy, right? It's bringing a pooled set of dollars, um, you know, to a group of people that typically don't have that amount of money to give. 
Um, and I found that being a part of Family Foundation, you know, that money is money that's obviously in the family, but it's it's not something that I felt like I've earned, right, or had created, uh, just so happened to fall into it, right? And I think the experience of being able to give through a Family Foundation has opened up so many doors, um, whether it be just the learning experience of giving, kind of building that empathy really young as a kid and figuring out a cause that I really cared about. And I thought, you know, this, this should be something that is much more accessible to people. And a giving circle is a really interesting model as someone who understands giving pretty well, but hasn't really gotten into those conversations with people who, who, who would like to kind of see that world. Um, and so the, you know, the next gen giving circle is a way for, for me to connect with like-minded people in the DC area. Um, uh, we are about 105 people. Uh, we're in our third year uh, and we give about $50,000 away a year. So, you know, not, not a small amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for anybody who's a part of the circle to say, you know, I can be a part of a bigger giving entity is exciting. And I think that's one of the reasons why giving circles have taken off. Um, but it, it takes a lot of work, right? I think that's what people don't necessarily see. And we've yes. talked about this a lot is philanthropy takes work. And yes. if you're not committed to that, you're very likely to fall into some defaults that can be pretty damaging. So that's uh, on my next question, very relevant to that. Yes, uh, since many of the, many of the folks from your giving circle uh, we, we did a, a co-review partnership where we reviewed proposals from some of your grantees. As a result, some of the members of your circle found out about us, and, and a lot of them joined our evaluation committee, right, mm -hmm. fill out our form, so I know a little bit about a lot of your members. Uh, and they also, and a lot of them are also reviewing for catalog for philanthropy, or in some cases, many other things, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, like, the giving circle's a lot of work, right? They gotta read a lot of proposals, go to meetings, make decisions. Right, I got someone doing someone doing that like once for like one thing, right? But very often I've noticed they do it for a lot of time, a lot of things. Uh, and I, one of the most surprising things about running unfunded list is how many dedicated evaluators I have, and how happy they are to review proposals. Yeah. A lot of them don't do it right away. They so we have I'm sure people who wait till the last minute to do their assignments, but most of them like get them right away and. Increasingly, they're just like reviewing the same day I send the assignments out, or like really as soon as they can because they enjoy doing this stuff. Like what, uh, I also meet like regular people, normies, who, who think that's crazy. Why would anyone, I, in fact, I have an aunt who, who just sort of fundamentally does not understand anything about what I do, right? They're like, do they get paid? She keeps asking, she's like, why don't they don't get paid? Why are they? <laughs> She just yeah. goes back, and but they don't get paid. Like she keeps that. Yeah, I think she's just fundamentally a capitalist. Uh, but like, why is it that people do this? I think it's a number of reasons, and I, like I have some some hot take theories uh, yeah. on on which people will engage the most. And I would say, for the most part, it's people who want to learn from the experience, right? I think the value of being a part of a giving circle, there are a lot of different lenses that you come in with. They enjoy and, learning. Yeah, I've been in a few I myself, think, and that is a universal character trait, I think. Yeah. And with, I, my, with my evaluators as well, they like, the, right? they like yeah. the learning aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. The, the thing that actually helped me to explain it to my aunt, who, um, who didn't understand it originally, the phrase, and I use this phrase all the time now, is that the, our evaluators understand the tragedy of the unfunded proposal in some way. They've been involved in the proposal universe, and they've seen good ones go unfunded, right? Mm -hmm. And they and they're, they're just they're familiar with that tragedy in the same way that someone who donates to Alzheimer's probably knows someone who has Alzheimer's and is familiar with the tragedy of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you, and I don't just mean intellectually familiar; it has to have like actually happened to them, right? Yeah. Just in general to give to anything. And uh, there's lots of folks who like you know just sort of care about philanthropy and like to see ways. For it to improve, yeah. right? One of those folks was a guest in one of our earlier seasons, Barbara Harmon, from the Catalog of Philanthropy, uh, and she's uh, she's a big deal. In fact, has her name on buildings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the oh, it might be her. 
father's name, I guess. I'm not sure. Harmon is on. Harman it's a family name. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, we had a great interview with her. With her. Uh, fans of the show, I'm, I'm sure, will be familiar with it. You're involved with the. You're actually more involved with the catalog than I am. I've never. I don't think I've ever reviewed for it. I read it, but never read anything about it. Um, what is what is the catalog for, for 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 folks who didn't listen to that episode? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Why why should so, they? What is what's it? What does Barbara do? So to me, what I what I found in in kind of diving into the nonprofit community, and and I'll, again, I'll just kind of connect it to my family philanthropy experience. You get a proposal from out of left field. Right. Maybe you haven't heard of them before. Where are you going to go to try to figure out more about them? Right. You can have kind of that one on one interview. There's a lot of power dynamics that come out of that. So how can you do your work beforehand to learn a little bit about the topic and bring to the table a little bit about, uh, you know, how can you learn about this organization to a certain level? And then maybe you might go interview them. Uh, There are tools out there. I think probably a lot of people have heard of something like GuideStar. Um, or like great nonprofits or one of these big uh, kind of overarching databases of nonprofits out there with either peer reviews or, mm-hmm. um, you know, ways for the nonprofit to show that they're transparent. You know, I think GuideStar, they, you know, Candid GuideStar is, is a... Is we a generally recommend ProPublica. They have an enormous Pro number Publica of resources. ProPublica is another good one, yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, you can go on the 990s, you can look back um, like much farther, much, uh, yeah, and they have a lot of other interesting resources there. Yeah, so they're big. They're they're kind of grand. Their their role is really to build aware, not build, necessarily build awareness, but to be that tool that people can can grow awareness around around a particular nonprofit. Nonprofits can show themselves in that forum. Um, the catalog is kind of a localized version of that. I know that's very oversimplifying what they some of their initiatives that they're doing now, but. I like to think of it as if you want to have peace of mind around an organization that's in the Washington DC area, you see if they're in the catalog Mm -hmm. and the catalog focuses on a very particular budget range. So if it's a larger organization, you know, say $4 million plus budget, um, you're not going to find them in the catalog now, but they might've been smaller once and you know, we're, we're listed in the catalog and they're a part of the, the overall uh, architecture of, of the, of the community. I think mm-hmm. they're starting to do a lot of work with racial equity and trying to think about justice and making sure that, you know, their, their, their pool of, of nonprofit members are, are representative of the community. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of stuff that they do for capacity building and helping EDs understand some of the pressure points that they're feeling in the workplace and kind of guiding them through, um, you know, in cohort models, they're starting a bunch of things that are really exciting. Um, and I know the, the team there is, is small and, and mighty, um, but I've really gotten to know them through kind of my professional side, but also um, in, in wanting to support the DC area through the Family Foundation. I'm going to go to the catalog as one of my first resources. Um, I just think they're a little bit closer to the ground. Um, and it's another way that uh, the giving circle can tie in as well. Right. If you have an organization that really focuses on the community that the Giving Circle is in, um, it's a great area of content that you can share with members without having to do a ton of work. And so, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the work smarter, not harder approach. Um, you know, the catalog people are working really hard, but a lot of people can benefit from it. Different parts of philanthropy. So, so there is a. Um somewhat of a philanthropy support infrastructure uh, that exists. There are organizations whose purpose it is to, uh, are s- similar to the catalog and, or hand on funded list and help support foundations and that sort. Are you involved with any of those? Yes. Um, involved in a way that I like to think, and the work that I do now is very embedded in play and work culture. So. I like to think of family foundations as a, <laughs> they're not a monolith. They're, they're very much different in how they're, they're operated. They're families. They're ours. Huh? They're families. They're families, right. Most but you might have some staff with... that are outside the family versus some that are completely family run, uh, yeah. some that are doing that transition, some that are completely not family run and they're just sort of the name on the building, right? Or name on the, on the account. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, connected with, 
uh, a couple and, and have worked with a few. Uh, the National Center for Family Philanthropy is one um, that I think is, is kind of a capacity builder in the family foundation space. Um, they do a lot of work just, again, sharing that families aren't alone. It can be a pretty lonely journey as either a lead of a family foundation that has maybe more, more uh, you know, skin in the game for, for what comes out of the foundation in terms of its grant making and, and you know, the, the sort of optics of, of giving. Um, maybe, you know, for example, our family, you know, my name doesn't match the family foundation, mm -hmm. right? And so people that are members that are direct lineal descendants that drop down with the name, um, they have a little bit more of a connection to the pros and cons of giving, um, mm -hmm. which you have to be respectful of. And so you think of a group like uh, NCFP, they have consolidated a lot of that information, data, bring people together to talk through some of those different pressure points. Um, mm -hmm. And I think having a place to go is is always a good thing, right? To, to share, here's what I'm seeing. There's and an, the there's an increasing that number of families that have, a, that have access to excess wealth and right. a, pen, a very large pending wealth transfer. Um, yep. More money will change hands between the, some of the previous generations and our generation than has ever changed hands. Uh, and right makes and giving will be a very large part of how it changes hands, and it makes sense that we have some some good strong infrastructure organizations supporting that. Uh, you and I met through uh, Nexus. Uh, There's yes. also resource generation, and I know NCFP does events, uh, yeah. many other things out there. Uh, growing number of things also. Right, most local areas will have. Probably not something exactly like the catalog, but they will at least have a probably a community foundation community or foundation, something, yeah. someone uh, helping to support philanthropists in the area. Uh, yeah. One doesn't need to go it alone in general, uh, which is and, and I think that's why so many um, there's advantage to organization and to collective giving, which is yeah. why so many like because if you're if you do have access to the wealth, you could just by yourself be giving right. it up, right? Right. I think that's really important, right? Because when people think about a giving circle, and going back to one of your previous questions, I, the if you have wealth, there's nothing against giving it yourself, right? You will be a part of a process where you get you to You've got access to the checking account. That's all you need. Right? Uh, <laughs> but when you go into collective giving, you add that layer of, well, we might not give to the number one option that I want to give to. No. And how do you reconcile that? No, and people, right? and so, people willingly um, make that choice all the time. Right? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett made that choice. Very yep. interesting. Yep. So it's, again, that value. They must see some advantage in that. Right? Mm -hmm. And unlike their other endeavors where the goal is to just make more money, right? Like, the, well, we could, some of these, the, the Gates Foundation has managed to make more money since it was founded. Yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned it before. I used to know this number exactly, but its endowment has grown since it was first set up, right? Which is because they're managing the money very well. Which the argument in favor of that is that it'll allow them to give more for longer, right? Yeah. Uh, but to, right, yeah. The, 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 like, I do. I don't think that <laughs> general public realizes right that that fund is just like is growing just, very at a pretty rapid rate. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Nexus, and I, yes. I think there's there are more. And they just recently. I wasn't able to go. Did you go to the one this summer? They just no. I wasn't wasn't it. able to go. I um, uh, the pandemic has taken away a lot of those kind of like social big social. I events. really looked forward to going to that every year. Yeah. I went to the I went twice here. I went to the one in DC and the one in New York every year. Yeah. But I think that the big takeaway that I had from a community like that is just the the amount of energy behind connecting your philanthropic donation and philanthropy in general to your investing, mm -hmm. right? And that was a lot of the track that I mm. would try to follow. Sure, is, yes. you know, if you're, you know- That was a very to common out, topic at Nexus, yes. That's very interesting yeah, stuff. If you're trying to put out a fire with one hand and you're starting with another, like how are you really feeling about yourself? Well, um, not to, not to further so, defend Gates, but that is a big part of why the endowment has grown because they, they do some heavy impact investing, which actually has greater returns than traditional which investing. Has greater returns, which makes me right. wonder why there are any traditional investors left. <laughs> you could make that argument. 
Uh, I'm, I'm not an yeah. I don't understand. I've, when I go, to, actually, the last time I was at Nexus, I went to a panel and I asked that question. And some of the folks who knew more than me had some very insightful answers. This yeah. was, I think, for some of the older generation, they like they found strategy that was working for them, and they, they found that 30 years ago. And I worked for them for 30 yeah. years. So you can come yeah. in and tell them all, tell them what, whatever you want. They have strategy that they know works. So yeah. <laughs> that's what they're going to be doing until they die. The for some of them, small small. That's why that's why those folks. My general understanding. Um, very cool. So let's talk about Kettering Philanthropies. It's big. I pulled some descriptions from the website. Excellent. Which I am going to read. Sometimes I read, I pull my guest's bio and I read their bio out loud, right? Which is sometimes a very humiliating experience. People need to do their checks on what their, what the most readily available bio is for them. Uh, by the way, these, this is from the, the website of Kettering Philanthropies. And there's, as far as I can understand, there's, it's broken up into three different funds. The Kettering Family Foundation was founded by Charles' son, Eugene W. Kettering, and his wife, Virginia W. Kettering, in 1956. I believe there was a tax bill passed in 1956, which made, founding a, which made starting a foundation much more tax advantaged. Many of them were founded in the late 50s as well. The, uh, it's asked to support a broad range of charitable activities of interest to the Board of Trustees composed of Kettering family members. Then there's the Kettering Fund, which was founded in 1958. They were fund founders back then in the 50s. By Charles F. Kettering, the Kettering Fund is a sub-fund <laughs> of the Kettering Family Foundation. The fund primarily supports the activities of charitable organizations that are located and or provide services in the state of Ohio. A great state. Uh-huh. And then there's the Virginia W. Kettering Foundation, which is a charitable trust created upon the death of Virginia in 2003. May she rest in peace. Grants from the foundation are restricted to supporting charitable activities in Montgomery County, Ohio, and seven counties contiguous to it. Kettering University the Cincinnati Zoo, and the Sloan Kettering Institute. Uh, only, only three funds? Uh, it's, is that, are you sure you've... It's complicated, but let's... What, so is it, is, is the regional specificity jumps out. Is that the main yeah. reason? Like you wanted one that's only up for Ohio, and then much later you're like, well, only for this part of Ohio? Yeah, I mean, by you, you I mean, imagine. you know, the family. Yeah, you can imagine the family was very much centralized in Ohio for the start of its existence, right? Mm-hmm. Of this foundation. Obviously, there were family members before this that lived elsewhere, but that core unit of um, Virginia, Eugene, and, and, and Charles of Kettering, you know, being in and around Ohio, they wanted to support local causes. You know, think of you know, anybody who's listening in, right? Where are you most likely going to support? It's places that you know, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you either know people there, you know, causes that you care about, you know, you know where you might be able to put your dollar and, and make it go the furthest. Um, so it started there and and it, it, it has evolved over time into a family that's now, what, 50 plus people? And those 50 plus people live everywhere. So, uh, yes, there might be some concentrations, but there's been a pretty big effort over the last number of years to try to carve out, uh, you know, Ohio is something we still really want to support, but how do we make sure that it's reflecting the interests of the family who may or may not know Ohio as well as they did? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when, some of those when people, other when I mean people who are very frustrated and confused by family foundations, I, uh, I often try to point out that like there are many household name institutions, <laughs> probably some that have helped you personally, right? That would not exist if it weren't for family foundations. Yeah. Right? So they can be frustrating or whatever, but they they create like palaces, museums, right. Um, right. Right. symphony orchestras, right? My yeah. own grandfather attended a place called, it was once called General Motors Institute. I believe it is now Kettering University in yep. Flint, Michigan. And of course, people even unfamiliar with philanthropy will have probably heard of the Sloan Kettering Institute. Yeah. 
so I think the goal of a lot of family foundations is to is, is, is probably to create like they, I think they would all be very proud of themselves to have created more than one enduring mm -hmm. institution, right? <coughs> and uh, here at Unfunded List, uh, I would love it. I would love to see Unfunded List become an enduring institution, right? It's a household name, people that everybody knows about, right? Capable of supporting large numbers of folks. Uh, what do you think? I mean, uh, I, I think it's easier said than done, though, right? Uh, like, what does it take to create an institution like that? Something that's like permanent and existing and philanthropy supported. I I think it takes a very specific desire to want to control that much wealth and i think there are there's a, at least in my social circle a declining number of people who are comfortable with it mm. um i like i can share my own personal journey i i am i understand its importance understand it as a as an institution that's giving to big things but like who am i to opine on healthcare yeah, right? like my dad is a doctor so he's closer but does he know healthcare and or like the future Ohio? of the engineering profession right? <laughs> right the future of the engineering you know kettering was an inventor so he uh was a very very good electrical engineer and if you think about you know someone who is uh you know heading up the patent office for you know a little bit of time like he knows a good amount of stuff he knows that world but if you start extending it to health and arts and uh, environment and, uh, you know, health and human services kind of stuff. Like, is that person really the person you want making the decision on where millions, billions of dollars go? Um, probably not. And so mm -hmm. I think the, the challenge of, of our generation, I'm a fifth generation member of this family foundation, which means that fifth generation after Charles Gettering, um, I, I think there are a lot of us that are trying to figure out what our place is, what that legacy quote unquote looks like, because um, there are a lot of institutionalized issues with that mm -hmm. and holding a ton of wealth. Um, it's very so I think what it we're trying to figure once, out. never once occurred to me when I was coming up with the name for Unfunded List yeah. to call it the Moss Institute for Grant Review right. or anything like that. Right. Like that. I mean, maybe if I was making a joke, right? But the previous yeah. generation of philanthropists, that was like their go-to. Yeah, they go, right. I mean, I think taking it all the way back to an Carne athlete. The right? Carnegie Institute. Yeah. I, as an athlete, you start up and you're looking for, you know, several things. Maybe there's tax advantage, starting your own personal foundation. But as, you know, there are a lot of golfers that have their own, their own foundation that they've created. And they use that to drive impact in either their hometown or mm -hmm. cause that they're really passionate about. And you know, it's a really good way to round out someone's um, time. I, I mean, athletics can be a very egotistical space. Mm -hmm. uh, you think about yourself a lot. You build a team. We did review a proposal from. You. We received a proposal from the Sloan Stevens Foundation. Yeah. This round, I think I assume yeah. I must have assigned it to you because. Yes, I did. I got it, and it's interesting, She's right? Cool you work see in her hometown. Yeah, you and see if you review proposals with us, you get that's what you get celebrity grant proposals. That's one of the things we are able to offer evaluators now. Right. We've <laughs> had a few. So, we have a few kind of famous folks send us proposals this round. Yeah. Um, right. A lot of them are, which is interesting to me. Um, a lot of a lot of folks, right, really, really want to be helping out, even if they have excess wealth. They also engage in fundraising, right? Because obviously, people see some advantage in giving together, right? And, and not just in silos and in, and in making it more of a de democratic process, which probably is related to our own country's democratic roots, right? Like I was saying right. at the start, if you ask people what's the first thing you gave, right? That'll, that will relate to what you're doing now. Our, when our country was young, right? The first thing it gave us was Bill of Rights or like in general, democracy, the ability to govern ourselves, arguably is the first thing our country gave us when it was young, right? And now, right, we're trying to, in philanthropy here, we're influenced by that and trying to continue that. Yeah. Um, what are you most excited about in the world of philanthropy? I think I'm excited about the fact that more people have access to it. Um, I, 
it, the the process of, or sort of evolution, my own journey through a family foundation has been, I mean, very, very meaningful and, and find that I can bring a unique perspective to a lot of conversations. I think I can see, you know, its benefits as much as its flaws. Um, one of the big challenges that I think the family, and I was alluding to this a bit ago, being a you know sixth generation family, you've got a lot of interests at the table. You've got a lot of people who are trying to figure out what to do, and that and as a result, you don't necessarily have a united front about what you're trying to support, right? If you have people that are just you know all over the map, I want arts, I want humanities, I want science and literature, and what, it doesn't matter. Like if you have a passion, you want to support it, and you've got fifty people, and you split the pot fifty ways. Are you giving collectively, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, um, you know, the access to philanthropy and giving circles and things like that are, are built on a very particular um, set of passion points, right? So there might be, you know, sub, an example, Next Gen Giving Circle focuses a lot of its time on racial equity, small organizations in the DC area that are racial equity focused and are providing some form of economic empowerment. Um, and you think about that small organization that does it, there are only a number, there are only so many of them in the area. And so you can really dive deep into an issue, learn about that issue, you know, bring people into the conversation and learn through that giving process by either following up and volunteering or getting involved in some other way. Um, when you have a huge institution that gives to so many different things, you would hope that those individuals that are passionate about those areas would continue to follow that line. Um, and I, I think there's just more room for those conversations about what works and what doesn't, because you just have more data from those groups that are giving, right? Giving circles are providing a lot of information um, that to the, the sector to say, this is what has worked. You know, here's a giving circle that has uh, an institution backing it. And wow, they're you know much more you know solid and, and resilient through tough times because it's not a volunteer-led effort. Um, or here is a giving circle that is entirely volunteer-run, but because they're identity-focused, um, they've got a, a, that sort of like internal engine that keeps them going. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, I just think the accessibility to philanthropy has challenged a lot of those norms that you might see as like, well, this is just the way it was or the way it should be or continue to be. Yes. And I think that's great because diversity in that thought is important. Yes. We got, I think when I first, when I was a baby philanthropist, there was an awful lot of that, like, well, this is how it, it, it is type talk. Yeah. Uh, and as I just mentioned, like a lot of these foundations were founded in the 1950s. It's not really that old of a field that we're that we're working in. So obviously, yeah. like the idea that like this is how it's always been done. We mean it's always been done. You mean since the late fifties, right? Yeah, like, since the late fifties, right? And, and on the flip side of the coin, I hear people who are like crit criticize philanthropy as an antiquated process, and I'm like, that's antique means over a hundred years old. That's true. So you are mathematically incorrect, sir. <laughs> I'm sure you could find some examples of people <laughs> that are antiquated. Uh, I, I've heard people say grant proposals are antiquated and they only really became like a popular thing in the 70s. So like, yes, it's not perfect, but it's, it's it, compared to some other industries and fields, it's extremely young, right? Yeah. And right now I do think we're starting to get back to like, well, we can, and there was a lot more talk about if you, look, if you dive into your philanthropy history, but you should not do unless you're like trying to take a nap. <laughs> but if you look in the beginning, there was like a lot more in the very beginning when the first philanthropists like Carnegie started trying to give money, they realized that it's a lot of work and they yeah. started hiring professionals and setting up organizations to support all of that. And they were like very upfront about how difficult it was to choose projects. And like they also like to talk about a lot of like, like the, how difficult it was to be asked for money all the time. Right? And they would be pretty critical, disdainful of their grantees in their language. Right? They use the word supplicant a lot. Mm. Um, which is something you're not fine philanthropists saying now. Uh, so uh, what I think is ex what I think is exciting now is that you like you just said you've got folks who are trying to get better, iterate new things, right? But in a more and they're doing it now with a much more inclusive lens than they were previously, which I think is only going to build even more um, 
right? Household names that are helping people, right? Things yeah. that you just sort of assume have always been there, but in fact are the results of philanthropists. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it kind of comes back to your, you know, the question of what do you learn from golf, right? The humility piece, mm -hmm. like it's, you can start a giving circle, get it off the ground, run it for a couple of years, and then just say like, we don't have the capacity to do this anymore. And that's okay, right? Like that is still an experience that was meaningful for a number of people. Generally, that's what I assume with giving circles. Yeah. And how could they, I mean, they're not just sort of, once those people move on, then, then there won't be, then that circle won't be there. It's going to be really hard unless they can transition the leadership. And then you're starting to think about, well, this is becoming an institution, right? right? And, and how do you, you know, not at the level of maybe a Catering Family Foundation, but it's, it's a thing that has weight in the community. And just kind of knowing where you fit in the greater scheme of philanthropy. Like I know we talk about NextGen a lot at least with some of the folks that are kind of in and around the leadership group, the, what does NextGen bring to the DC community other than money, mm. right? And we think about our 10, 11, 12 grantees that we've given to over the last few years. It started, you know, we're in our third grant cycle, right? And we can already see that grantees that we've given to have been able to leverage a grant from a giving circle to get a bigger grant, right? Much like you might see yourself you know, getting feedback from unfunded lists, or you might see yourself, you know, being attached to another grant making or philanthropic entity that has clout. And even though we're only two, three years old, um, you know, people are able to use that. And so you don't need to be this 100 year old or 50 year old organization to, to be able to command uh, someone's attention, right? And I think that's really exciting. Um, that you've got the, you know, a hundred people have decided to vote for your organization because they were really moved by what you did and your proposal mm -hmm. that you submitted. And, you know, that, that kind of, you know, experience is, is something that I think has really changed my perspective of what you can do in a couple of years with philanthropy. But again, it's taken a good amount of work to build that quote unquote brand so that people know at least what they're looking at. Um, all right. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, it's been a great conversation as always. Uh, Peter is a board member of Unfunded List and an evaluator and his company is called Game Genius. His giving circle is called Next Gen Giving Circle. He's a trustee at the, you're trustee of the Family Foundation? Yeah, okay, yeah. And then, that, and then they have a sub fund. <laughs> the sub funds I, I have nothing to do with. This but. is, I often, you encounter things that like foundations say, and I'm like, I've never, and I know a lot of foundations, I've never heard any, anyone else say that word. But they'll say yeah, it like it's a normal, fun. commonplace word. Yeah. <laughs> we had one of the rejections this high, round, I had a really good, so like, I also like to collect rejection letters. So like, cause I talked to a lot of people who have had their grant rejected, right? And we asked them like, if they gave you anything, like, could you provide that language? So I've read like a lot of declination notes uh, and it's a very, very difficult thing to write. And there was one from this round, and it says, as is standard practice at foundations, we are unable to provide feedback or meet with the grantees we've turned down. Like, what are you talking nice. about? Who's standard? Like, the, whole, the whole industry. talking about? about <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, we know this is a shitty thing to do, but it's standard practice. So you can't, <laughs> can't blame us. following <laughs> 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 it was so frust so frustrating for folks to get a letter like that after working That's so hard on a great proposal. Yeah, it's also a little understand they can't they don't it would be take a lot of time. It's already a lot of work to do the program in the first place. They're not trying yeah. to sign up for extra work, right? So, no, and that yeah. I mean ultimately is why you know we've we've gotten to know each other and why I'm so supportive of something like Unfunded, right? I just I cannot if I put myself in the shoes, which I have now been in, right, mm -hmm. as a nonprofit. You got your proposal reviewed. We did, our, we did your right. report discussion last week. Um, if you're on the other side and you get an email that says, you, we, it was a competitive round, mm -hmm. you know, you've probably, a lot of people might have seen this in a job application or a school application, right? Like, it was a competitive round. We wish we could uh, accept every applicant. <laughs> Uh, but you know, we couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't fund your, your thing this year. Like what, what is that? What is the, how is that going to help the person? Right. Other than saying like, we didn't do a good enough job. The I mean, number it of helps. They can, they can move now that they've been declined. They can move on. They can move on. Cause they are right. the most of them, at least part of them thinks they're going to get that grant. Right. Cause that's why, I mean, otherwise they wouldn't have applied. Yep. Uh, um, you also know, inside the, 
the beast of a family foundation. You know, mm-hmm. there, it's not a it's not a perfect system, and mm-hmm. I think that's the big the big misnomer. It's very easy to become familiar with the tragedy of the unfunded proposal, and folks mm-hmm. who are familiar with it do seem to enjoy being on the evaluation committee yep. of unfunded list, yep. uh, which I'm sure all of our listeners have already signed up for. Right? And if they've written proposals, they should send those in to us, too. Uh, maybe maybe Peter yeah. will, will read yours. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes full paragraphs, which I appreciate. <laughs> uh, all right, thank you very much, Peter Williams. Are you playing golf today? I am playing golf today. I got my college shirt on. Yep. Uh, very nice. I'm taking the day off. I'll do some things around the house and everything. I say that now, but it's right there. So I have a tendency to just, like, <laughs> you clean it up. I'm like, you know, I could just, you know, just duck, dart up there real quick, right? And I'm just like, I was going to hit a few putts, right? And then you see somebody you know, and they're like, hey, you want to come out, right? And then I played 36 holes. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. You right? We got a limited season up here in Maine, so you got to take advantage of it. I was going to say, you're right in the middle of the season. So. Yeah, it's just been perfect every day, so I feel like I, I owe it to myself to enjoy the weather. Uh, but yeah, it is a beautiful day. Uh, have a great round. Thank you joining us and for all your great work and support of philanthropy. Thanks, Dave. Have a good day. You too.